Well, good morning. Uh, I give you a welcome in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both those who are in the sanctuary, those who are following, worshiping with us on live stream. It's great to have everyone uh, joining in for worship. I want to uh, thank and welcome uh, Nancy King, who is filling in uh, for Amy Reber, uh, who is ill, and appreciate your coming back to our church. And then, next thing, uh, we have uh, produced a new uh, video of the church, and uh, we're going to give you an opportunity to take a look at this uh, right now. When we have received members of our church, we have asked them, why have you joined this church? They'll mention one or two things, but they will always bring up about that teaching. What's primary for us to do is proclaim to preach the gospel. We do this through what we call expository preaching. Expository preaching allows us to do what we are called to do as ministers, and that is to proclaim the full counsel of God. It's not for me to select passages here and there that are my favorite passages, but to preach whatever is before me. In my mind, there wasn't a question that this is where we're going to start. Now, whether we ended up here and finished here, we'd see how the Lord led, but we were started here and we haven't left. And the main reason for that was the church's commitment to truth. They've continued to stay committed to the ancient doctrines of Christianity. We started going here right after Julie was born. Out of all the other churches that we'd tried out, it was the best one for having a small child. And they made it really easy to take her to children's church and be able to worship as a family. And we just loved that not only do we have somewhere to have the girls um, while we're worshiping, but that they are learning everything that they need to grow and foster a relationship with Christ. I love that our kids are worshiping with us as a family, and I love that they are growing in how God moves in us and through us and to us in a worship service, but also the importance of congregating together with our church family. Really, a multi-generational church that comes alongside us, encourages us. Since I came, I think it's a really good, encouraging church that helps you want to learn about Christ. One of the things I think that makes Lake County Presbyterian Church so unique is the music program that they have. I came in as a substitute just filling in and getting uh, the choir through till Christmas and eight years later I'm still here. We have so many people who love to sing and are very active in the choir program. A number of great musicians are drawn here um, because they have the opportunity to share and to participate in worship. I think we all have gifts and we all have talents. The tech team, you know, I sat in the congregation and I saw a need there. And I'm like, you know, it's time. I don't want to know. And I have that experience. God's given me that, that, you know, I don't need to just sit here knowing they need help. And it has been rewarding to allow God to use my gifts and talents that he's given me, but also to develop relationships and be able to have those friendships. My interest in students started at, at a young time in my life. I didn't come to know Christ until my college days. I wasn't really raised in a church, alcoholic father. God used a close friend in my life to, to share the good news of Jesus Christ with me. I just had a strong commitment investing in others and helping, serving others. So that's been our heart here at Lake Oconee Presbyterian Church is to try to give back. When I was growing up, there was not a large youth group, and I was essentially a lone teenager who wanted to have kids around. When we came here, we were asked to come alongside a couple that was leading the youth group. These kids are the future of our churches. As a result of that, God calls us to this ministry. We won't be here because we love them. I've been coming here for maybe five months now. I came with one of my friends after a shotgun practice because I couldn't go home and he, I just kept on coming. I love the way Mr. Russ, he, he's so good at teaching. I like how they can turn anything into a game. It makes it so much easier to understand. My favorite thing about the youth group is seeing all my friends, fellowshipping. You know, I'd kind of known what the Bible said. I've grown up going to church, but Mr. Russ has 
help me understand it more. If you're looking for a place to have your child to be loved and accepted for where they are, that we will speak the truth in love you know, to them. Everywhere I've been, people are always saying, we're a friendly church. Lake County Presbyterian Church is a friendly church. I mean, I've, I personally have not experienced anything like it. Our elders, our deacons work together to shepherd and to serve the flock that Christ has given us. So that's another mark. It'll be the preaching, the teaching, and then it will always be how friendly, how welcoming uh, the people are. video uh, will be sent to anyone who's on our weekly uh, mailing list. You'll be getting that tomorrow. We want to encourage you to share that uh, with your friends and neighbors. If you're on Facebook, it's going to be placed on our Facebook page. You'll probably see it on your Facebook. We want you to like it. Well, if you like it, and uh, hopefully that you'll share it as well. We need to get this out uh, into our community. Now, the next uh, thing we have here is uh, George Roundtree, who's the chairman of the Pastoral Search Committee, is going to come and give a report. Good morning. Your pastor search team has now held 20 weekly meetings with near-perfect attendance from team members. In addition to the 10 candidates that the congregational survey provided, you've recently provided us a few more. We have contacted each suggested candidate to determine if they want to be a candidate uh, for our senior pastor job. A few have chosen to apply. There are several outstanding candidates who are interested in exploring our senior pastor position. We do not expect any more candidates. We started the process of personal interviews and sermon reviews of the top candidates. I'm very encouraged with the high quality of the men and the range of skills and ages. We believe that the pastor that God has selected for us is in our candidate group. We'll update you again as soon as our work progresses, and please continue to pray for us. I might add, this past Wednesday, we held a team meeting and interviewed uh, uh, two pastors via Zoom. At the end of that, we, uh, we had used up a couple of hours, which is our normal uh, length of our meetings. And people were so upbeat that we talked for a, more than another hour and I just summarize the comments by saying, wow. Our call to worship, I'm going to read from Psalm 19. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. We come, our God, that is our prayer for all of us, that the words of our mouths as we pray to you, as we lift up our voices and, uh, in the hymns, as the uh, word is proclaimed, we pray that all will be done acceptable to you, that you will take delight in this worship that we bring before you, because and, and through our Lord Jesus Christ, who is our Redeemer, we pray for that anointing of your Holy Spirit. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together, O for a thousand tongues to sing.
Let's confess our faith together through the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Let's pray together the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And our fathers, we have gathered here on this first Sunday of this new year. We worship you and we give you praise that you are our God who dwells in heaven, that you sit upon your throne over this earth, over this universe, that all things are under your sovereign power. We thank you that we may know that as we go forth into an unknown year. We pray, our Father, it will be before us each day of this year to honor, to hallow your name. We pray for your kingdom. We pray for the return of our Lord Jesus Christ and the consummation of your kingdom. For we pray that while we are here, that we will be found faithful in service of that kingdom, that we will understand that our true citizenship is the citizenship of belonging to your kingdom. May we be faithful to you in the service we render. We pray for your will to be done on this earth as it is in heaven. And so, our Father, as we pray on this day that is also the day in which our new Congress is sworn in, we lift our country before you. And we, again, give you thanks that you are the sovereign God. We pray now for your hand and your blessing to be upon uh, those who serve in the Congress, who are our elected officials. We pray for those who both acknowledge you and those who do not. And nevertheless, they are under your sovereign uh, power and kingdom. We pray for that work of your spirit by your common grace uh, to so work uh, among our Congress people uh, so that your will is carried out. We pray our Father, uh, for ourselves to be faithful in our own citizenship here in our country, carry out our duties there at the election polls. Our own state is the center of attention for the elections to take place on Tuesday. May we be faithful in the responsibilities that you've given to us uh, to serve your kingdom and how we vote and how we uh, serve our own country. We pray, our Father, for you to provide for us our daily bread, certainly the bread of your word, the literal bread that we need to sustain our bodies, for the health care that we need to sustain our own health, so that we might be good servants for you in each day that you give to us. We pray that you would forgive our debts, our sins, Forgive those sins that we have, which we have actively committed. We have transgressed your law. But also those sins in which there has been that good for us to do. And we have failed to do it. Our Father, ever keep before us uh, the ways in which you place before us each day of how we can glorify you. How we can honor you. Especially in the way that we treat one another. We treat those in our own homes, our families. We treat our neighbors. We treat those, all those whom you bring into our sphere of, of influence. 
the way that we treat our neighbor on the on social medium. We pray, our Father, that we would show forth always our faith in you, our love for you, the love that has filled us through the gospel of Jesus Christ and that should now go forth to our neighbor. We pray that we not be led into temptation. You know our weaknesses. We pray for you to deliver us from the evil one. We make this prayer acknowledging to you belongs the kingdom of which we are members. To you belongs all of the power. To you is to be all of the glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, we have uh, held elections and have elected um, or re-elected two of our uh, deacons who are now going to reinstall them. And I'm going to ask uh, Dick Forrester and Ken Johnson if they would come uh, forward, one on uh, each side. Now, the office of deacon that we are told in our book of church order is one of sympathy and service after the example of the Lord Jesus. It is the duty of the deacons to minister to those who are in need, to the sick, to the friendless, and to any who may be in distress. And I have two men on each side of me who have carried out uh, that duty well over these uh, years. By the way, I realize some of you may be wondering, well, where are the others whom you uh, had been put up for nomination? They're still in training. In, in a couple of more months, we'll have more uh, deacons standing up here. Well, I'm going to ask uh, Ken and Dick now uh, if you will answer these uh, questions. Uh, do you believe the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments as originally given to be the inerrant word of God the only infallible rule of faith and practice to you. Do you sincerely receive and adopt the confession of faith and the catechisms of this church as containing the system of doctrine taught in the Holy Scriptures? And do you further promise that if at any time you find yourself out of accord with any of the fundamentals of this system of doctrine, you will, on your own initiative, make known to your session the change which has taken place in your views since the assumption of this ordination vow, do you? Do you approve of the form of government and discipline of the Presbyterian Church in America in conformity with the general principles of biblical polity to you? Do you accept the office of deacon in this church and promise faithfully to perform all the duties thereof, and to endeavor by the grace of God to adorn the profession of the gospel in your life, and to set a worthy example before the church of which God has made you an officer, do you? Do you promise subjection to your brethren in the Lord? Do you promise to strive for the purity, peace, unity, and edification of the church. And to the members of the church, do you, the members of this church, acknowledge and receive these brothers as deacons, and do you promise to yield them all that honor, encouragement, and obedience in the Lord to which their offices, according to the word of God and the constitution of this church, entitles them? If so, then raise your right hands. And I'm seeing lots of hands there through that, that camera, members who are following. Let's uh, pray. We give you praise, our God, for that office of deacon itself, uh, by which you have, have raised up uh, men who, who care for the, the physical needs of the, the sheep of your flock, Father, I thank you specifically for, for Ken and Dick, who have already demonstrated over the years this heart of, of compassion uh, for your people. Uh, you have given them already a strong faith uh, by which we can follow their own example. We thank you for their love for this church, for this congregation. Now may you continue to give them that strength, that wisdom, that grace that is needed uh, to be strong servants of this church. Thank you for them and pray for them in Christ's name. Amen.
I now pronounce and declare that Dick Forrester and Ken Johnson have been regularly elected and installed as deacons agreeable to the word of God and according to the Constitution of the Presbyterian Church in America. And that as such, they are entitled to all encouragement, honor, and obedience in the Lord. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you. Well, you may be uh, wanting to uh, either open your Bibles to uh, Hebrews chapter 11, or you'll also find the morning's passage as an insert in your bulletin. Excuse me, I'm going to have a little bit more of my, my apple juice here to sustain me here. So in Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 32, when I was a young minister, for a number of years I wrestled with the value of faith. I knew that faith was necessary for salvation, but, but I wrestled with where was its value in daily living. Now, if I were honest with myself, the really underlying issue was that I was, I was disappointed in my ministry. Uh, there were no con uh, conversions. 
uh, that I saw other than one. There was no church growth that I could really perceive of, no, and definitely no miracles. There were no answers to prayer that I, I could see that they were actually connected with, at least with my praying, and then this miracle healing took place. And from my perspective, my ministry was a mediocre ministry. And so I was asking, what did faith get me? Well, eventually I would join a charismatic community. And I had that, that hope of, of getting a faith that was spirit-empowered. And I, what I desperately wanted was to experience spirit-empowered faith. Now, years later, I didn't actually even find it there in that charismatic community. It would be years later. I would come across the passage that we're looking at this morning that I would find the answer to my question, and it would change. It would change my spiritual life. So let's start looking at this. We're again in verse 32. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered the kingdoms, enforce justice, obtain promises, stop the mouths of lions, quench the power of fire, escape the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, women received back their dead by resurrection. I want to point out here the common thread among all of these heroes of faith. They were victors. Through faith, they achieved great deeds. Now, what had led me to this passage many years ago was actually I was preaching a sermon on another passage. It was the one in Mark in which Jesus, uh, is, well, there's a woman who touches Jesus' garment. You'll remember that. And she experiences immediate healing. Jesus turns around and he says to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Now I groan when I, I read this passage because I didn't know what to say about it. My faith, well, it never made me well, at least not miraculously. It had not made anyone whom I had prayed for miraculously well, not that I could document. And now here I am, I have to say something about such a faith that brings out a miracle. Now what do I say? Well, I thought, well, let me look up some other passages. Maybe there's something else about faith that I can, I can go to that's going to help here. And of course, Hebrews 11 is the one that's most notable. So I turned there. I began reading the chapter. And what I'd read far from encouraging me only discouraged me all the more. I was not like these great men and women of faith. And these summary verses here, the one that I just read, they especially discouraged me because they only testified what my faith was not doing. Well, I continued reading. Let's look at this. We're, we're still in verse 35. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Well, these are not success stories. These are people who faith who were not rescued. They did not overcome their enemies. Rather, they were overcome by their enemies. They suffered torture, imprisonment, horrible deaths. 
They became outcasts, and they stayed outcasts. They did not write books later on about how God had delivered them through these trials. Their faith, well, what was it that their faith achieved for them? Now, it achieved something, apparently, given what the next verse is saying. Look at me in verse 39 and 40. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Okay, our writer here speaks of all these, both the victors and the non-victors. Both are commended by their father. Okay, so their faith in God resulted in his commending them, holding them up in esteem. Well, one had victories, one did not. What was it that linked them together? And the next phrase gives us what our author is thinking about. He notes here that neither group received what was promised by God. You know, our author uses that term promise more than any other New Testament writer, 18 times, seven of them in this chapter alone. The term promise became the identifying mark of Abraham and his descendants. They are literally the people of the promise. Our author speaks of the promise as entering God's rest, as the eternal inheritance, as the land of the promise. Indeed, the very fact that Abraham had descendants, that was a promise. Now, most often in the scriptures, and most often our, our author does not define the promise. But you can tell that the promise was of two things. It was something to which the people belonged, but they also hoped for. It involved the territory of land that they did enter into and they possessed, but it also involved looking to a heavenly country. They were always, in one sense, they were possessing the promise and yet not quite possessing it. Kind of like having an inheritance that one still has yet to take possession of. Now, whether these heroes of faith won great victories, whether they endured great sufferings, still, they were both alike in one thing in that none of them never fully attained it. Okay. It's not until we have received this promise that they can be made perfect is the term that's used. But still again, they are both commended Commended for what? That is what I desperately wanted to know. And then the light came on. By faith, they all, both victor, both non-victor, remained faithful to God. Faithful to hold on to that promise that God has made for them, even still, though, that they had not received it. And then I realized that's the purpose. That's the, the value of faith. It is to keep one faithful to God. Keep faithful to God through the end. You remember the, uh, the purpose of the letter. I mean, when I had gone to this text years ago, I had not studied the whole book like we're doing now. But for us, we've been doing chapter by chapter, and we know what is the theme. Remain faithful. The people, the, uh, this is what our author is worried about for his readers. He's concerned they're either going to compromise their faith or they're going to abandon it altogether. Persecution has been rising. There has been more pressure on them to return to their faith of the Mosaic law. And he has already been warning them, do not miss out on the final rest like your fathers did in the wilderness. Stay the course. By faith, through faith, remain faithful to the gospel, which belongs to a better covenant than the covenant of Moses. Remain faithful to their Savior, who is, he's been noting, 
is better than angels, who is better than Abraham, who is better than Moses. And so with that in mind, our author then finishes out this section on faith actually into the next two verses in chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Run the, with endurance the race that is set before us. That's the theme of the whole book. Remain faithful. Stay the course. And he's been saying, look, we have this precedence of these great saints of faith who by their faithfulness, they are for us. They are witnesses to the faithfulness of God. And so, stay focused. Lay aside everything that would distract us from this race. Don't be distracted by the enticements of going back to the old traditions. Do not be distracted by the, the lures of this world or the, the hopes and the fears that are tied up in this world. Don't be distracted with the besetting sins that keep trying to cling to us. Lay them aside. Lay them aside so that our eyes are kept on the reward that is before us. And above all, look to Jesus. Remember, as he has said earlier on, Jesus is the founder of our salvation. And he himself had to be made perfect through suffering. He too had to endure. And indeed, he endured the cross itself. He despised the shame. He remained faithful to his father. And it led to victory for him. He is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He is there as our high priest. And the promise for us is that we will follow him there. We will be in that throne room if we remain faithful to him. Now I want you to note how the final goal is described for Jesus. It is the joy set before him. It is that joy that spurred our Savior on. It was joy that was his motivation. Joy was his, his sustainer through the suffering. It's not fear that was set before him. Neither is it fear that is set before us. That is not what's going to keep us faithful. Joy. Joy in the promise that has been assured to us. Joy in the eternal salvation that is ours. Joy in our entry into the heavenly city. That is what lies before us. That's what's going to keep us faithful. Now, as I've said, this understanding of the, of the value, the, the purpose of faith, I mean, I tell you again, it changed my life. Came to understand, look, I cannot control all that happens to me. I can't control all the circumstances. I can't control all of the results, whether I'm going to get, attain great victories, whether I'm going to endure heavy defeats. But what is mine to hold on to is faith. And by that faith, remain faithful to the Lord. Like I said, it all clicked when I came to understand this. And I thought about this. Look, even the world has an understanding of this kind of truth. That what matters is not how many accolades and so-called victories that we attain, but to be true to oneself. And one of my favorite characters in literature is, is Don Quixote. And I, and I love that scene in The, in the Man of La Mancha, if, you, if you've seen that musical. And there's a scene in which there's a servant girl, Dulcinea, and she demands to know what is it that moves this foolish knight. 
And that's what then leads him to singing the impossible dream. I'm not going to sing it for you. But you remember some of those words in which he speaks of, this is my quest to follow that star. No matter how hopeless, no, no matter how far. And then to fight for the right without question or pause. To be willing to march into hell for a heavenly cause. And then these lines. And I know if I'll only be true to this glorious quest, then my heart, my heart will lie peaceful and calm when I'm laid to my rest. Then I thought about those lines. When I'm lying on my deathbed and I'm looking back over my life, what do I want to be able to say? Oh, well, I succeeded in everything I tried. I can only count victories. I, I was able to avoid trial and suffering throughout my life. Is that what I want to be able to say? Well, no, I want to be able to say that, look, I've, I've had my own share of trials and, and tribulations. I've had my own share of disappointments. But, but whether I succeeded or whether I failed, I remain faithful to my God. And when I am laid to my rest, my highest hope is to hear from my Lord, well done, good and faithful servant. That's what matters. You know, for our author, that's what mattered to him for his people. And that's what has mattered over the centuries. You know, over these last 2,000 years, I mean, kingdoms have risen, kingdoms have fallen. The church, depending where it was and what time of history, it, is, it has flourished and it has struggled just to survive. There are Christians who achieved great victories. There are Christians who have been harshly persecuted and whom we'll never hear from because in the world's eyes, they're failures. But what matters in every age is that faithfulness to their God and to their Lord Jesus Christ, they have remained and kept that faithfulness. You know, I know that many of us were worried about the future. We're upset with what is happening in our country. But what I keep ever before me is that our citizenship is in this heavenly country, with this kingdom of God. And that's and what matters to our king is our faithfulness to hold fast to our confession, as our author has said before, to hold fast to our hope in that heavenly country, to hold fast to that without wavering, to be able to testify before the world, and especially when the world is against us, that our devotion is to our Lord Jesus Christ, and that our confidence remains ever sure in God, our Father. Does the world see that we do not fear the future? Because we're looking at a city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Does the world see that we consider the reproach of Christ greater than any treasures that can be found in our own country? And this leads to further reflection. I came to learn that it was this very problem of turning my eyes away from my eternal inheritance to temporary treasures. It was that that was undermining my faith. Now, my temporary treasures were not with the wealth of this world. Rather, they were what I was using to measure spiritual and ministerial uh, success. Miracles. That's what I wanted. I wanted dramatic church growth and, and conversions. I wanted experiences of, of feeling the power of God at work in me and, and through me. That's why I was attracted to charismatics. I mean, look at them, and then they, they were experiencing miracles. At least they said they were. And they were they're receiving special revelation from God all the time. And by the very way that they, they prayed and they, they worshiped with this intensity, 
Well, it seemed to me that they're, they're experiencing the power of God. And I wanted that. I wanted to see power in my, in my own ministry. I had these small churches, less than 50, in small towns. And they're not growing. Not the way that I thought that they should. People's lives were not changing. Not in the dramatic way that I thought they should. I, I felt mired in kind of a mediocrity, especially I turn on my TV and there are these TV preachers and evangelists and they're just filling and showing all this great power and success to see, to, to feel, to, to experience. I wanted this, this tangible evidence of God's power at work. What I wanted was the excitement of the extraordinary. And in this obsession to feel that extraordinary, what happened was that I lost sight of the real power of the gospel. That power that comes through what are called the ordinary means of grace. Well, time went on, and my focus reoriented to being a faithful servant of the Lord, and I came to an understanding of the power that already existed in what are called the ordinary means of grace, or the ordinary tools of the ministry. So, for example, I learned the power of preaching scripture, that is, of focusing on understanding what the scripture passage teaches, and then preaching that message. That's what we call expository preaching. And I can tell you, like, as I would prepare my sermons, I would catch myself getting excited as I studied uh, that passage. I mean, there would be times I, I literally would have to get out of my seat, walk around in my enthusiasm. And then, when I was an associate minister, I was given the task of praying the pastoral prayer in the weekly uh, worship service. And I didn't think too much about it until after a while people would come up to me and tell me just how much they were touched. They were moved uh, by, by the prayers. And then our church added a weekly communion service, an earlier service. And I led that service and then week after week of administering the sacrament. And I began to see how it was influenced. It was doing a work in my own soul and in the souls of those who were coming to that service. Do you see what was happening? These, what we, we call these ordinances, preaching the word, prayer, the, the sacraments, the Lord's Supper and, and baptism, they are called ordinary means of grace. By that we mean they're not the extraordinary displays of the Holy Spirit's power, but they are the regular, ordinary means through which the Holy Spirit works his power of sanctification uh, in us, how he empowers the believer. And I learned that they work. I did not need special revelation from God. I needed to study seriously his written revelation and then be moved and, and molded by that. I didn't need a a special visitation from the Holy Spirit to move me. I needed to pray. And in that prayer, I needed to reflect on the, the person of God and, and reflect on the gospel. That is what would move me. Now, I did not need these, these signs and wonders. The sacraments, particularly being able to, to do regularly the, the Lord's Supper. That's what fed me with true nourishment and with the wonder of the gospel. I remember the day that it, it all came together for me. It was on a Sunday morning. I I'd preached in that early service. I prayed the pastoral prayer, which was based on the Lord's Prayer. I administered the Lord's Supper. Then I hopped in my car quickly, went over to another church across town, a small church, where I administered a baptism of an infant. In each activity, the gospel is expressed. It's at the center. It's proclaimed. It's prayed. It is administered. Do you see the sign of the gospel? 
And I remember driving home afterwards. Just, I just felt great. I was feeling the joy and the power of the gospel. And that's the point. It's the gospel. I learned that I need go no further to experience joy and power. The gospel is the joy that is set before me. The gospel is the power that moves me. And preaching that gospel, administering the signs of that gospel, praying the gospel, that's where the power is. And faith is of greatest value if it keeps me faithful in receiving the gospel, being sanctified by that gospel, and then ministering the gospel to others. And finally, here's the blessing of such faithfulness. As I faithfully take the gospel in and pass on the gospel, then the more power that gospel will have in keeping me faithful. You know, I struggled all those years because I sought the power of God through extra means rather than the gospel itself. I looked for emotion itself rather than the truths of the gospel which produce emotion that can be trusted. It's the gospel that reveals the heavenly city to which our spiritual ancestors looked. It's the gospel that reveals the fulfillment of the promise of God. That's what sustained them. It's the gospel that clearly reveals the Messiah, our Redeemer and Lord Jesus Christ. And it's to him when we look for salvation and be faithful. May you look nowhere else, trust in nothing else than what clearly teaches the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's for such joy, the joy of your salvation that led him to endure the cross. It is for such joy that he is now at the right hand of the throne of God, serving as your high priest. We give you praise and thanks, our God, for our Lord Jesus Christ, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, that we might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. And now may we be as like him, being faithful in receiving that gospel, and studying and being filled by that gospel, and passing it on to others, that we might truly honor our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing together, O oh, great God.
Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Amen.